continue further this morning in relation to uh, this truth Paul is emphasizing of contentment or being content in Christ. So let's read together Philippians chapter 4, and we'll begin in verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. These, th- those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Notwithstanding, ye have well done that ye did communicate with my affliction. Let's go to the Lord in prayer again this morning. Father, we humbly bow before you, recognizing our great need. You are a great God, and we are thankful that there is no need that is present in which you have not provided for us already in our Lord Jesus. And so as we've gathered here this day, we just pray, Father, that our hearts and minds would be receptive of the truth that is before us. We would recognize that, Lord, our joy, the peace that we have from you, the contentment that we have in Jesus Christ is completely independent of the things that happen and transpire within this life which we now live. Lord, it is all about the relationship and fellowship that we have been provided with you through your Son. And we are grateful that we can recognize this truth from the Scriptures and also we can realize this truth in living it out within our lives. You, by your working of your Spirit within us, Lord, continue to teach us. As Paul says, you teach us to learn to be content, to recognize the real need that we have and as well that your provision is infinitely more than enough for all that we may need. And so as we approach your word this morning, may we do so with humility and with thankfulness and praise within our very hearts for all that you have done and most importantly because of who you are. And so Lord, we ask that your spirit use the truth of your word today. Guard our thoughts and our very the very words of our mouth. And Lord, may all that we do and say be that which honors and glorifies you as we proclaim the truth of your word within this passage before us this day. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you and be seated. Last week we began as I've mentioned to examine the ninth of the ten divisions within this epistle in which Paul expounds upon the excellency or superiority of contentment in Jesus Christ. It's interesting, I will mention this, because there's somewhat of a difference in the definition to a small degree, but contentment is a noun while the word content is an adjective, Um, and so it is that which uh, is the defining, if you will, whereas the noun, of course, contentment is that of a person, place, thing, or idea, and it's that which we possess. And so we'll look more into that in a few moments. But as I've previously mentioned, if we are to recognize something to be inferior, 
it requires that we acknowledge that there is something superior to that thing. And so when we speak of the excellency, again, or the superiority of contentment in Jesus Christ, this again, again, being Paul's thesis statement that we are to examine those things which are superior, we are to consider those things. As Paul expressed in chapter 1 and verses uh, 9 and 10, we read, And this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, verse 11 goes on to say, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. So Paul exhorts the church to examine the superior things. Paul further explained that which he knew was superior in Philippians 3, 7, and 8. But what things were gained to me, Paul said, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency or superiority here of the knowledge of Jesus or Christ Jesus, my Lord. Last week we spent our time together considering really Paul's charge in verse 8 when he says, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, Whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. We spent our time last week examining how that in reality, even in relation or in contrast or comparison to 1 Corinthians 13 concerning charity, how that many times that, has, that passage has been viewed as though Paul is instructing us to live our lives in such a manner after this pattern of charity. But really that's not what Paul states at all. Remember I showed you in the first several verses of chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians that Paul stated that if you have not charity, that's possessive in nature. He's not talking about something you are doing. He's talking about something you possess. So if you don't possess this charity, then All you do, all you are, all you may become is all in vain and empty. It means nothing. And so Paul is explaining there, furthermore, I believe, that we could really plug in the name of our Lord Jesus. We could say, if a man have not Christ, then all is in vain. Because, of course, the love of God is demonstrated and manifested, as Scripture clearly teaches us, in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so charity here is not talking about what we think of when we think of charity. It's speaking of God's love in Christ or Jesus himself in reality. And just as that is so in 1 Corinthians, last week we saw in verse 8 of chapter 4, Philippians, Paul is is doing something very similar to that which he did in, in 1 Corinthians 13 in this regard. That Paul is actually saying that whatever things are true, whatever things are honest, just, pure, lovely, good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. So Paul provides this list that we've referenced seen in verse 8 and these are things that are superior these are things that are are worthy of our attention and our constant consideration it is jesus alone who is true it is jesus alone who is honest it is jesus alone who is pure it is jesus alone who is lovely it is jesus alone who's of good report by the way it's interesting this term is used good report because if you think about again the gospel the very definition of the word gospel is good news What greater news is there to tell than that of Jesus Christ? And so we see here that as with 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul mentions this charity, we really have to dig and see he's not talking about some demonstration of our actions of affection, but he's talking about the demonstration of God's love personified in Jesus Christ. And so it is here in Philippians 8. While we may think on things that are good or things that are pure or things that are lovely or things that are true or things that are honest, the question still remains, what is more lovely 
than our Lord Jesus Christ? What is more true or honest or pure? What could be of a greater report than Jesus Christ? So ultimately, we are to be focused on him. The now virtue that's used here when he says, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things, means excellence of character. Our attention, therefore, is to be undivided. If there's anything of excellence or excellent character, what is more excellent of character than Jesus? And so again, we are to think on him. Our thought is to be captured by the beauty and the preeminence of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul then goes on to say in verse 9 of our text, those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do, and the God of peace shall be with you. As I have previously mentioned, we realize or we experience the fullness of this peace of God in Jesus Christ as we submit to the truth of God's word and follow our Lord Jesus. Why should we not follow in total submission and commitment to Christ? For Jesus is superior. That's the whole message of Philippians. Knowing Christ, Christ himself is superior to all other things. There is no other person or thing as excellent. There's no other person or thing as superior. There's no other person or thing as lovely as the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we read this passage of Scripture, we are reminded that there is one verse within this text which, is of one of the, which would be one of the better known, if you will, verses of Scripture that is often, I would say, used, but I would rather say, honestly, misused in our text. And so I want to actually... Uh, jump a little bit ahead here and deal with this verse. We'll come back to this in time. 13, you know the verse. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Everyone loves to cherry pick this verse out, don't they? Everyone loves to take apply however they choose in their own lives and try to make their life or themselves feel better, I guess, about whatever is taking place or what is happening or the, uh, 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 the opposition or whatever it may be in their lives. Now, while this verse has often been mistaught, misunderstood, and misused, it is a significant statement nonetheless. Paul, however, is not making a general statement intended to be plugged into one's life in their, in their manner of choosing. But rather, Paul is declaring an absolute truth by which he lived his life and was confident. And Paul, within the context of this statement, makes it very clear that this is what he is saying. He, in clearly teach us that, and we're not going to get there yet, but about I know how uh, to suffer need and how to abound. I, I know what it is, Paul says. And then he goes on to say, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And it's very interesting that Paul would make such a statement, but he doesn't make it in an isolated context. He has an actual context to the statement being made. And so we'll see what that is even further in just a moment. This truth in Paul's life of he was confident in Christ and knowing that Christ was his strength and would strengthen him and therefore he could endure whatever God might ordain to be, that he would be able to persevere and, or, and walk and work through that by the working of God's power of his spirit within him. And we see this clearly demonstrated probably in, in, the, in the most detailed manner in the account of Paul within 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, Paul writes, And lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, depart from me. And he said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness." 
Paul then says, Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then strong. Here again, you have what would appear to be part of the paradox of the Christian life, if you will. In order to be strong, we first must recognize we are weak. In order to live, we first must die. It's on and on we see this truth of Scripture, how that it's paradoxical to our way of thinking in the natural realm. But in reality, it's not paradoxical at all. It's us and the way we think that is actually the paradox. But yet, we see in Scripture where we, spiritually speaking, that we must die to live. We must be weak to be strong. We must, we must submit to experience victory. Everything seems opposite of what we would naturally think it to be. However, we recognize that this is not really the case at all. It's just we are viewing it in this flesh and how we would normally process such thoughts or statements at a natural level. But we notice here in 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10, it's interesting that we see Paul's contentment here as well, do we not? Because Paul is saying, oh Lord, I would ask that you remove this thorn in the flesh. Now, I personally believe when you look at Paul's life, I think it would be out of character and therefore out of context for us to even assume for one moment that Paul is saying this from a selfish uh, place. I don't believe Paul is saying, oh Lord, remove this thorn, it just troubles me, it bothers me. I believe that Paul thought this thorn to be hindering him in the ministry of the gospel. And so he's asking God to remove it because to him it seems to be a hindrance until the Lord opens his understanding to show him this is not a hindrance. This is something that keeps you grounded and rooted and dependent upon me. And so Paul then in response, notice the contentment here. Rather than saying, well, Lord, I still would really like you to move this take this from me. Rather than saying that, he says, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. What he's saying is, I embrace the infirmity for this reason. For when I am weak, then I am strong, because his power is made strong in my weakness. His power is demonstrated and manifested in my insufficiency. Paul's declaration, of course, in Philippians 4.13 has much more meaning than that which is commonly accredited to it. Philippians 4.13 is not mystical, it's not magical, nor is it a statement we claim out of a desire to speak some physical victory into existence, as so many times it's been misused. But notice, Paul's statement is one in Philippians 4.13, which is inseparably linked to the difficulties he faced due to his gospel ministry. Paul is saying, I suffer the loss of all things that I may know Christ. Did he not just say that in Philippians chapter 3? And then he moves on here in chapter 4, and he talks about how it goes on to say, I I know what it is to suffer need, I know what it is to abound, but regardless of the situation, I have learned to be content through Christ, and I know that Christ will strengthen me for whatever God may choose or has chosen to be. That he is going to... Now, he's not talking about, God, give me what I want will sustain me regardless of the situation or circumstance I find myself in, specifically in relation to the gospel ministry. So I believe to isolate this verse apart from the gospel ministry of which Paul is so clearly speaking is to greatly misuse the text altogether. Paul is actually saying, I can do all things through Christ strengtheneth me, 
He's saying or declaring that Jesus is sufficient as his provision, his strength, and he is content in Jesus Christ, no matter what other deficiencies he might experience at any given moment of his life, specifically regarding, again, his sufferings for the sake of the gospel of Christ. At the risk of getting ahead of myself, I do believe it was necessary to address this one verse prior to our examination of the preceding verses, to which this verse is contextually and vitally linked. So now we'll move back to verse 10 after having just briefly overviewed verse 13, which we'll get into it more so at a later time. Let's look at verse 10 now. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Now in verse 10, Paul sets literally the stage for his declaration of the superiority of the contentment experienced only in Jesus Christ. The Philippian church was one of the churches which was faithful in supporting Paul in the ministry of the gospel. As I have mentioned previously throughout our study of Philippians, Paul spoke of the Macedonian church as supplying his need in the ministry of the gospel in his epistle to the church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 11.9, Paul says, And when I was present with you and wanted, talking to the Corinthians, I was chargeable to no man for that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things I have kept myself from being burdensome unto you, so will I keep myself. So Paul is saying, you did not meet the needs that were present while I was ministering to you as the Corinthian church, but yet those churches of Macedonia, they provided, those brethren supplied for the need. Now the region in Greece known as Macedonia included the towns of Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea. And although these churches were not monetarily prosperous, Paul received support. The affluent church at Corinth neglected to provide for Paul's need. Now within verse 10, Paul expressed his joy, notice, that the Lord had once again provided opportunity to the Philippian believers to take partnership again in the ministry of the gospel. So let's go back to verse 10 again. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again, wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. So Paul here again is setting this stage to help us to understand the, his contentment and the superiority of the contentment that is found in Jesus Christ. So Paul further explains in verse 11 as we continue that he was content in God's provision regardless of his situation. Look at verse 11. Not that I speak in respect of one. So he says, you cared for me prior, but then you lacked opportunity. It's not that you weren't aware and careful and that you did not give care to care for me, but he says you were not able to. The opportunity was not provided, but I rejoice greatly now that God has opened that door of opportunity for you now to become become again a partaker in the ministry of the gospel with me um, in this work that is being accomplished. But then he says, verse 11, not that I speak in respect of one. In light of all that, it's not that I'm speaking out of lack or need, he's saying, for I've learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. So within this verse, Paul explains, that is verse 11, that his expression of joy in the previous verse was not out of selfish desire or personal gain, but rather a genuine thankfulness that the Lord had providentially allowed this church now to have the privilege to partake in the ministry of the gospel. Now, if we are to understand the truth of Paul's declaration within verse 11, when he says, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content, if we're truly to understand what Paul is declaring within this verse, there is a question which demands an answer, and that is simply this. What does it mean to be content? Because he says, I've learned in all things to be content, but then what does that even mean? Many would claim that to be content is to be satisfied. Now, while there's truth to this definition, it is more than satisfaction alone. 
or as we would often view satisfaction, at least, or define it ourselves. Webster's 1828 Dictionary defined the adjective content as held, contained within limits, hence quiet, not disturbed, having a mind at peace, easy, satisfied, so as not to repine, to object or oppose. The satisfaction included in this definition of being content is that one is satisfied in the sense that there is no opposition, no fret, no repine, and no objection to what is. But rather there is quiet stillness within this person concerning whatever matters may be existing around them or they may find themselves within or dealing with. So to be satisfied is one thing, but to be satisfied as defined within the meaning of this word content or contentment is quite another or is quite foreign to what we may often think as being satisfied. We think of being satisfied often as like, oh, I have this and I really don't want anything more. That's not what this is talking about alone. It is saying that regardless of what's happening around me, my contentment is in Jesus Christ, and because of that, it produces a peace and a quiet and a stillness within me, regardless of whether I have much or whether I have no thing at all. None of that depends, or none of my contentment does not hinge or depend upon those things. And not only is it that we can say, oh, I'm satisfied, but it's that we recognize that we do not object. We do not fret or object against that which God has purposed to be that we are now involved in. So even if things are not as I would desire them to be, even if things do not work out like I like them to work out, even if I'm in a situation something that I, I find to be pleasant or pleasing, the fact of the matter still remains if I am truly resting and trusting in Christ, my contentment is in Him, then regardless of all of that, there is a quietness, there is a stillness, there is a peace that is present. Not to say we don't suffer things. No, regardless of that which we suffer. We are satisfied in Christ. Paul explains, he says, not that I speak in respect of want. The statement in respect means according to. And the statement of want means lack or need. So Paul is saying that he is not speaking according to lack of need. So he says, I rejoice that you are now partaking again of the gospel which I am a part of, that you are now a partaker with me in this ministry, but I'm not saying this because I'm lacking need in something. It's not, I'm just, I want your, your, your goods to come to me. That's not the point here. He goes on to say, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. It is most certain that Paul experienced times of need as testified in scripture. Yet it was through such times that the apostle Paul stated, I have learned. Paul doesn't just say, I am content. He says, I've learned. That means that someone's been teaching him. And it's through those situations he is being taught. That's the point. It's interesting that it is the Lord, of course, who would teach Paul, but this was announced at the very time of Paul's enlistment into the gospel ministry. In Acts 9, 15 through 16, we read, but the Lord said unto him, to Ananias, Go thy way, for he, Paul, is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. 
For I will show him, Paul, how great things he, Paul, must suffer for my name's sake. From the very beginning of the announcement of Paul's enlistment into the ministry of the gospel, at the time of his redemption, of his conversion, we find God is speaking to Ananias, telling Ananias to go to Paul and to minister to Paul. And Ananias says, but Lord, he's persecuted many of believers. I know he's persecuted the church in Jerusalem. Then the Lord says, go. He's my chosen vessel. I will show him. I will teach him what great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul also explained in his letter to the churches of Galatia that it was God who had revealed the gospel to him. Galatians 1, 11 and 12. But I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached of me is not after man. He's saying, I didn't learn this from another man. For I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it from man, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Christ revealed. And this, of course, is when he was in Arabia. So this three years or so that Paul was in Arabia. And God took out there to be alone with, with him. And the Lord revealed himself to Paul, obviously. He revealed Christ to Paul. And Paul did not learn the gospel from an apostle. And God had ordained him to be an apostle and equipped him to be so. And so God taught him personally. So the Lord had taught Paul throughout his earthly ministry that his provision in and through the Lord Jesus Christ was all sufficient. And we find evidence of this truth throughout Paul's gospel ministry. Now, that is not to say that Paul did not have times of need, as we've mentioned. As we will further explain in the following verses, Paul will do so. But rather, it is to say that Paul had learned that God would faithfully provide all that was necessary for his purpose of the gospel to be fulfilled. Let me say this to you. This kind of will be a self-checkup for us to some degree. Paul says, first, I know what it is, and we're not getting there yet, but he does go on to say, I know what it is to be a base, I know what it is to abound. So he says, I know what it is to suffer need, I know what it is to have abundance. Paul's not saying it's wrong to have abundance, and neither is he saying it's wrong or that God is not loving with need. None of this can, is hinged on that. That's the point he's making. But would it not be us to pause for a moment to examine ourselves? Would it not be a true statement to say, that if God has already promised in his word that he is going to do everything that is necessary, it's already been, provision has already been made for everything concerning his purpose being fulfilled, the gospel message being proclaimed, the gospel continuing on, his kingdom coming into existence, into actual literal existence. God's going to make certain that all of this will be. God's not bound and limited by time, remember? All this shall be. If that is true, and it is, and truly our heart is after God and after the gospel and the kingdom of Christ, then what excuse do we ever have to not be content? Our lack of contentment would come because we are desiring God to usher in our kingdom, not fulfill his kingdom. People say, I don't have everything I need. Oh, well, you may not have everything you need or want to fulfill your desires, but God will faithfully supply and provide and equip through the the ministry of the gospel, through the Lord Jesus Christ, through the church of the Lord Jesus, everything that is necessary for his kingdom to be fulfilled. That's why Paul could say, I'm content, I've learned. 
In his letter to the church at Corinth, Paul wrote of giving and the Lord's faithfulness to provide all that was needed for the Corinthian believers to abound to every good work. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, and 8, Paul said, Every man, according as he hath purposed or purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth the cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Now, if you take that out of context and you put it into your context, then you're wondering why God doesn't give you everything you want because he's sufficient in all things. That's not about your work. It's his work that's being done. God's going to provide everything necessary for his purpose to be fulfilled, not yours, not mine. So then does it not behoove us to align with God's purpose? And would it not be good for us to be content in knowing that God is going to fulfill all things according to his purpose and plan and his will, and nothing can hinder this? As Paul declared to the church at Ephesus, Ephesians 1, 3, you know this verse very well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. We are going to further uncover the truth of biblical contentment as we consider the following verse in this chapter, verse 12. We're not going there today yet, though we danced all around it already. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Genuine, that is to say biblical contentment, is something that we must learn through the experiences in life in which we find that Jesus truly is all-sufficient and that our Heavenly Father always will faithfully provide everything that is necessary for the furtherance of the gospel and the fulfillment of His eternal redemptive purpose. Here's the truth of the matter. We learn to be content, as Paul says, I have learned. We learn to be content as we look, live, and rest in God's provision for us in Jesus Christ. Listen to what the writer says in Hebrews 13, verse 5. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Do you see what the writer just did? Oh, don't be coveting other things and be content with what you have. But what is it we really have? Here's what we have. His promise of his indwelling presence. I've said to you so many times, as long as I am in this life, Christ is with me. And the moment I step out of this life to an eternity, I will for eternity be with him. But either way, we're together. Now, it will be much clearer in eternity than it is right now. For we all, we look in a glass darkly. We, we, have, we have vision right now. But nonetheless... I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. What do I have? I have his promise of his indwelling presence throughout all of my life. And at the end of this life, I have the promise of eternal life with him. That's why Paul said, as we've already discovered, for to me, to live is Christ. What's he saying? I am living and my life is Christ. Christ is my life. 
but to die is gain. Well, if Christ is my life, how could it be good to die? Because when I die, I am with him for eternity in his very presence. Paul says, I have learned to be content. I have learned to be satisfied to the degree that I do not object God's providential work in my life, whatever that may be, for the sake of the furtherance of the gospel. I do not resist nor reject or object to that which God is doing because I'm resting in His providence, in His care. Again, to summarize, and we'll look at this again surely next week, but to summarize the entirety of what Paul is saying in this portion of the text, I have learned to be content through Christ. That is the gist of what Paul is saying within these verses. Let's stand together in prayer. Father, we do thank you again for the...